I'm not sure how many of you are fans, but in 1978, the singer Bob Dylan had a profound spiritual experience. He was in a hotel room in Tucson, Arizona when it happened, and he described it like this. He said, there was a presence in the room that couldn't have been anybody but Jesus. Jesus put his hand on me. It was a physical thing. I felt it. I felt it all over me. I felt my whole body tremble. The glory of the Lord knocked me down and picked me up. Now, that was a remarkable thing for a rock and roll singer to say. It was particularly remarkable for Bob Dylan to say because he was raised in Judaism. And nobody knows exactly what happened in that hotel room, but something in Bob Dylan changed. Uh, a year later, he, re he released the album uh, Slow Train Coming, and it was completely dedicated to songs expressing his new faith in Jesus Christ. When he went on tour promoting that album, he actually refused to sing any of his songs, uh, his previous songs, that didn't testify to Jesus. He had been known up until that point as a very quiet person, very introverted. Uh, in concert, he didn't speak. You might get a thank you out of him. You might get a good night out of him, and that was about it. But after that night in Tucson, Arizona, he would sing these new songs of faith, and in between them, they said he didn't speak, he preached. He preached about Jesus and the second coming. Remarkable uh, change had taken place. But everyone wasn't happy with it. Fans who had grown up listening to his music uh, were less than happy. Uh, hecklers started showing up at his concerts. His critics were ferocious in describing uh, what they thought of this new Bob Dylan. And eventually, it seemed to all take its toll. Uh, after three faith albums, after a series of uh, personal uh, tragedies, and after a lot of bad press, Dylan's, what was now called his Christian phase, ended. He returned to the secular music, the preaching stopped, the bold declarations of faith in Jesus came to an end, and uh, Bob Dylan began experimenting with, among other things, ultra-Orthodox Judaism. Of course, nobody really knows what happened in that hotel room. We don't know what happened uh, following this three-year period, and we don't know exactly what is going on in Bob Dylan's heart to this day. But if suffering was a test of Bob Dylan's faith, then his faith didn't pass a test. Thomas Akempi uh, wrote these words 500 years ago, but they're no less relevant today. He said, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. 
He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. If that's true, and if that's an accurate description, then that should be troubling to us, because according to the scriptures, both faith and suffering are gifts of a righteous God. They come as a pair. A spiritual experience, while wonderful, isn't in itself evidence of true faith in a person's life. But according to the Bible, a godly response to suffering is. How someone responds in the midst of uh, great pain and difficulty is often a good indication of what's really in their heart. We've been in a series called Inextinguishable Joy, where we have been looking at the letter of a man in imprisonment, facing a trial before Caesar where he knows it could very well end in his, uh, his death. And as we have been reading through and studying through this letter, and as we will continue to study through this letter, we have seen incredible, somehow unflappable uh, joy that's been, that Paul has, has communicated and expressed. But in today's passage, we get a picture into what's behind it, where it's coming from, and some of the, uh, the thinking that are uh, at a, a source of that joy. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we are uh, just going to uh, focus on the last uh, verses of that chapter. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. Now, this, mas- this message manages to com- combine two of the most unpopular truths in the Bible, and so we're going to deal with those first, and Lord willing, we will uh, continue on from there. So here's where we're starting. Faith and suffering are both gifts of God. Most people don't see either of them as gifts, and that may be a part of the reason that we don't often experience the kind of joy that Paul manages to express in such difficult circumstances. But according to the Bible, both faith and suffering are gifts of God. I say that in part because that's what Paul says in verse 29, if you'll look at it. There he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, two things have been granted to us, one to believe in him, and the other to suffer for his sake. We'll look at them one at a time. First of all, uh, the word that Paul uses for granted in verse 29 uh, means to graciously give. 
uh, it means to offer in kindness. There's another word that they would use to just say, you know, if you were giving someone a library book or something, just a, a plain give or to hand over, that was a different word. Here it is doing something good to someone, doing something uh, gracious to someone. Uh, when you give, give someone with that sense, you would use this word. So he says there are two things that have been granted to us, and we're looking first, first at this faith that is granted to us as a, as a gift. And the idea is that it, God made it possible for uh, you to, to believe. Getting your head around this is very difficult for us. We tend to think of uh, ourselves as completely independent, completely uh, in charge of everything that there is in our life. If I made a decision, then it was my decision. It was only my decision. And here it says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. God granted it to you that you would believe in him. So, we're seeing this here. Let's look at some other passages where this comes up. Uh, consider Acts 11.18, for instance. There it says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God granted repentance. That means he, as a gracious gift, he made it possible for them to turn from their sins to faith in Christ. He did that as a gift. He gave them uh, that work in their hearts that would open them up and give them the grace to change. Notice again in John 6.65, that's where Jesus says, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. God granted the ability for them to come to Jesus. And the idea is that you and I are so stubborn that if God hadn't first worked in our hearts, we would never approach him. We would never listen to him. We would never open our hearts to receive him if he hadn't first given as a gift the, the, uh, the grace to do so. I think we heard that in the Atashi's testimony just a few minutes ago, right? That God had so powerfully worked, he had them uh, all on the very same day, even, even when they were trying to keep it secret from one another, God independently worked in each of their lives to draw them to himself. And he did so so that when it was all over, they would look back and say, I think that was God that was doing that. I thought it was me at the time, and now I realize it was him. Uh, that same thing happened in the Apostle Paul's life. He was about as far from God as an individual could be, about as far from trusting in Jesus as anyone that you could ever imagine, because he was set out, life goal, persecute Christians, try and stamp out faith in Christianity. And while he is full, full on engaged in that task, Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and he said, it was like scales fell from my eyes. God met him, drew him, and granted to him that he might, too, believe in Jesus Christ. And later, when people would say, how is it, like, you were 
like dead set against Christians. You were against Jesus. How is it that you're now planting churches and preaching about him? And all Paul could do was just keep pointing back to God and say, I don't even get it myself. He did it. He did this as a gracious gift in my life. He granted to me that I could repent and believe. And that knowledge that faith was a gift brought Paul joy. He could recognize, I didn't deserve this. I wouldn't have even, I wouldn't even have been here had it not been for his gift. So Paul knew that faith was a gift from God, but he also knew that God's gifts come in pairs. So again, in verse 29, he says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Faith and suffering are gifts of a gracious God. Here he uses the language of granting for suffering as a gift. And it's important that he uses that word and we, we hear that word because we never think that suffering is a gift. We always think that suffering is wrong because it is painful. But the reminder of scripture is that God often uses suffering to accomplish good purposes in our lives. Sometimes he uses it to strip us of things that are unhelpful and, uh, and, and need to be removed from our lives. Sometimes he uses it to make us depend upon him because when we, when we are without suffering and without having experienced anything but comfort and happiness, more often than not, our tendency is away from God and to, to walk in independence. And so that's one of the ways that he uses suffering. And as we'll see in today's passage and as we've already been seeing in Philippians, one of the ways that God uses suffering is to speak to a watching world, to show people the reality of our faith. So suffering here is God's gracious gift. Uh, sometimes it's described as, as a gift, something that God grants to us. Other times it's described as a calling. In 1 Peter 2.21, uh, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And the idea here is Jesus suffered to bring us salvation and that as we seek to bring that same salvation to others, it will often come because the world is in opposition to God and all of his purposes, it will often come in the midst of suffering. Paul saw that this was so crucial to, to the Christian life that when someone came and put their, their faith in him, in, in Jesus, Paul would, Paul would include the, this idea of suffering as part of his basic discipleship. He would include this as, as Christianity 101. Don't forget that suffering is a part of the package. In, in Acts 14, there's a scene of him encouraging some of the disciples, and he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It was a part of the Apostle Paul's discipleship of new believers, but I wonder if it's been a part of your discipleship. When you came to trust in Christ, did somebody point it out to you somewhere along the line? Don't forget, even though when you put your trust in Christ, he gives us peace. He gives us rest. We have 
power in the Holy Spirit. We have forgiveness in Jesus' name. We have acceptance before a holy God. But don't forget the suffering. Don't forget that a part of the equation is that we still continue to live in a world that is at war with God. And if you stand with him, stand with Jesus Christ, you are liable to take some of the hits. You are liable to be on the receiving end of some of that. Was that a part of your discipleship? Did someone point that out to you? Because I'm almost certainly, cer- certain that it was not a part of Bob Dylan's discipleship. I'm sure that nobody spelled that out or made that clear to him. So God uses suffering to purify us. God uses suffering to make us depend upon him. God uses suffering to speak to a watching world. But we need to know that God uses suffering as a gracious gift in our lives. And if we don't know it, if it wasn't part of our discipleship, and if nobody ever made that clear to you, then when suffering comes, you can be thrown off. You're like, where did this come from? Maybe maybe the, the Jesus thing didn't work. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's not all that strong after all. Maybe he's just like taking a break. Suffering comes as part of the package. Faith, suffering are both gifts from a gracious God. But they're not just random, unrelated gifts. It's not like they just don't have anything to do with one another. And so next we want to see that suffering shows what we really believe. People say they believe all kinds of things, right? You've heard people tell you that they believe in aliens, Uh, or they believe in the Loch Ness Monster. You've had people tell you that they believe in Bigfoot. They can tell you all kinds of things about what they believe, but it is only when their belief costs them something that you see what they really believe. Somebody can tell you that they had a remarkable and an amazing experience in a hotel room, but that on its own doesn't tell you what they really believe. It is in the midst of suffering that we show what is really in our heart, what we really believe. So how does a believer approach suffering and loss? Interestingly, Paul doesn't give a list, the the Ten Commandments of what every Christian should do when they suffer. He doesn't point to a list of things to do. Instead, he points to the gospel. Want you to, I want, to watch, want you to watch how he does that. In verse 27, look what he says. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't intend by that, let your life be so worthy that you can earn the gospel. No, you can't earn good news. The good news is God's gracious gift to, to us. But having received good news, we can live in a way that is worthy of that good news that we've, been re- we've received. The gospel is that through faith we've been forgiven when we should have been judged. The good news is that through, we've received eternal life when we should have been eternally damned. The good news is that we've received an amazing gift of salvation from a Savior who died for us. We have been given this amazing gift by faith. 
And the way that we suffer should reflect that. The way that we live in the midst of difficulty should give people a picture of this thing that we say we believe and hold to be dear. When we do, Paul says in verse 28, if you look at this, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When suffering comes, people will see what's in our hearts. And he's saying, when they see you hold up in the midst of suffering and cling to Jesus and experience a peace and a strength and a hope that this world doesn't have an explanation for, then they will say, that is from God. There's something that God is doing in this life. It seems like there's something real there. That will be a life worthy of good news. They'd heard good news, but now they see a life that reflects that good news, and they can see reality as a result. Francis Folk said, in all ages and not least today, the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel, you're thinking, oh, it's probably the threat of some political regime. or the... No, nothing out in our world. He said the greatest threat or hindrance to the advance of the gospel has been the inconsistency of Christians. They say one thing, they just don't seem to live it. Just doesn't seem to be rooted all that much in their hearts that it'll come out in their lives. Let's show people good news by the way that we live and respond to the difficulties that come. Now, Paul gives some examples of how to do that. In verse 27, he asks that he might hear of them that they are standing firm in the gospel. He uses a military metaphor that meant to to hold the line, to, to, to stand when the enemy is advancing, you're not retreating. It was a, sta- a sense of standing firm. But he doesn't want them to try to do that alone. So he says, stand firm in one spirit. Then he adds, with one mind. And he says to do it side by side. Don't do it alone. He, he says that because often when trials and difficulty come, you know what we do? we kind of start fighting with each other. The stress takes root and we get ornery and we start biting on each other, right? And that was what was happening in in Philippi at this point. We either do that or the other thing that we tend to do, stress comes, suffering enters our life and we begin to withdraw. We step back and we hold people off and... Paul says, don't do that. I I have given you family in the body of Christ for this very reason. I have graciously come into your life and provided the means of your support and encouragement. Don't pull away from that. Don't don't let go of that. You need this at, at a time like this more than ever. And finally, he talks of showing people your faith by your fearlessness. In verse 28, he says that when we're not frightened in anything is when we demonstrate our faith. When people look at us facing the diagnosis, facing the rejection, facing the difficulties that come, and they see us with, not because we're strong, not because we're just naturally courageous, but because we are clinging to a great and glorious Savior, 
when we have courage in him, when we are not filled with fear because we know a God who is able, we know one who is faithful, and we are holding our, ourselves next to him. We are clinging secure in his arms. When we do that, we have a fearlessness about us. And the world can see that and says, that's got to be God, because I know it's not him. I know that they're not just naturally like that. And so he would call upon us to uh, cast ourselves upon Christ to feel and to experience his power. A spiritual experience in a hotel room may be a wonderful thing, but it doesn't ultimately show what's in our heart. We see our faith by how we respond when difficulty comes. You see what is in your heart when it costs you something. So when suffering comes, let's receive it as the gracious gift of a God who loves us. Not something that we're inviting, not something that we love, but something that we accept because we recognize that God is good and he can be trusted. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon you and ask that you would give us the, the strength to stand firm. Help us not to back away when it looks like it may cost us something. Help us to strive for the faith of the gospel. And help us not to do it alone. Help us to get better connected with one another that we might stand strong and support one another. And Father, as we cling to you in the midst of loss and difficulty, would you make it count? Would you use our lives to speak to the people around us? And would you glorify yourself and use us as your vessels? For we ask you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.